What is up, friends and listeners? Today's episode is with one of the smartest people I have ever gotten a chance to chat with, and I do not mean that hyperbolically. Max Roser is a director of research at the University of Oxford, and he is also a founder of, of a little website called OurWorldInData.org. When I first came across Our World and Data, um, it quickly became one of my favorite favorite websites out there, if not my favorite. It is a resource that distills and crunches all of the best data and research out there and puts it in a really accessible way for you and I to be able to see what's going on in the world around us. And, and it is a nice antidote to the mass media's portrayal of, of what they want you to feel like is happening around us. And instead of the world feeling like it's falling apart, they look at, at a lot of the best research and data out there and highlight some pretty amazing positive trends that have been happening over the last few decades to, uh, to counterbalance that. Max is, um, he's also just such a uh, unique person to chat with because he ties in all kinds of different disciplines uh, in addition to economics and data visualization into how he thinks about uh, his work his, his own career path, and it's, it's just a great episode. We talk about everything from his own story, Our World and Data, a Y Combinator, um, that he literally just finished about two days ago, and it's, it's an episode that I'm really excited to share with you all. So without further ado, here is Max Roser. This is Below the Line. All right, Max. Cheers. Cheers, James. Cheers. I'm uh, drinking um, one of my favorite morning drinks, matcha bar, that I told you about a few minutes ago, uh, and then you ha- you had one. How did it taste? I loved it. That like, is a. Uh, I had matcha tea in the past, but to have the the matcha without the work. Right. Yeah. Sounds ma- like a good way forward. It is uh, you know, matcha bar cans as uh, hustle. That's what it's called, and. Um, it's matcha tea in a carbonated candy. You can find it. I think it's uh, Whole Foods. But um, that's neither here nor there because uh, I'm really pumped to have you on the podcast. We've known each other for, for years. And uh, for listeners that don't know, my background's in development economics originally. And Max is uh, one of the best known development economists in, in the world now because of the work that you've been, that you've been doing um, out of Oxford. Um, in our world and data, you can go find our world and data.com. Um, dot org. what's that? Dot org. Dot org. Sorry. <laughs> dot org. Um, well, the dot com redirects to the dot org, obviously. There we go. So you can go either, either way. If you're a for-profit person or a non-profit person, <laughs> you, they'll, yes. they'll hook you up. Well, the, we were actually just talking before we started, um, about research around, around the web and, and, um, and what was the organization you're, you're talking about that? That you're meeting with um, later today, if you're if you're comfortable. Staying. Sure, sure. Like they're called Fermat's Library. Fermat was this mathematician, um, and their their work is focusing on maths, but isn't restricted to maths. And uh, they what they want to do is to and for Americans, that's math, math, <laughs> <laughs> maths. Yeah, true. Um, well, like the way that research is mostly published 
is is in either is in academic journals and those academic journals simply produce pdfs that they put online um and then every researcher everyone who's interested in it reads these pdfs by themselves and one big step forward is to do that at the university where people have reading groups and get together after everyone read the uh the paper and then you can discuss it with with your colleagues um but they are basically taking the next step where it's not just your group of researchers in that uh closed circle of of uh, university but it's public for everyone and they build this tool where the pdf can be annotated by everyone who's reading it and is is bringing their own thoughts to uh, to the research um and that's the product that they're building and it's um, an open access free product and it's very close to our mission so i'm gonna have lunch with those guys yeah it's such a um an obvious problem when you when you hear about it but it's something that you don't that you know i've never really thought about it just um like in the medical field, PubMed has, I've heard it's uh, about 100,000 articles published a month, uh, or research um, right. studies published a month. So it's way more than any anyone could ever, you can't even consume maybe because they're so dense. And it's very hard to extract, okay, what are the learnings? What are the insights uh, for for alignment? It's, um, you know, you could get through maybe 10 a month, but uh, 100,000 and in these these just get published like what happens today in, in our world and data and we'll, we'll get into that in a sec there can be this amazing team of researchers that do this work for five years bringing these insights to light and then how does that research uh make its way into either policy or into you know dialogue um today how does right. how does that happen yeah the like all of these projects like are very very closely connected and i think there's a big scope for innovation in making research available in making reading research um more useful for the reader like i was just meeting with andy matushak and michael nielsen who are working on this project where the frustration that they are coming from is that everyone spends so much time reading and then a year later few people actually remember the key yeah. insights from what they've read right like that's such a it frustrating to me with every book i read right yeah <laughs> exactly and the way to to make reading more or learning like the way to make learning more useful is to to space out uh, repetition over the coming weeks and months so they produce this reading experience where you go through the material once but then you get uh, notifications um, three days later, a week later, 10 days later, a month later, and maybe a year later. So with mm. increasing uh, time distance from, from your original reading, where you are asked about some of the, um, like to, to get back to some of the questions that, that you learned about. Right. And it's such a straightforward thing to do. Um, it wasn't possible really to do this um, for centuries. Now no. it should be possible uh, with with the web, with uh, reminders in social media, with your phone, with emails, right? It should be really straightforward, and we can build these tools to to make um, to make the research production and consumption um, much more engaging and and useful for everyone. Yeah, the consumption side is it feels like such a under thought under 
discuss yes. side of the equation because it's and I imagine like most things it's just a relic from the past yes. 50 years ago it was just trying to get published was so hard and what's what's sad now is you have these brilliant minds still thinking and kind of encouraged to think about uh, the publishing and and rightfully thinking about the the data and the methods of acquiring the data but not thinking about the consumption yes. or the uptake and then you have all of these these clowns on YouTube just thinking about uptake and <laughs> consumption of of whatever they're peddling and their their uh, influencer channel that are brilliant on that side of yes. things that are thinking about all right I need to open with this intro of a mystery that I solve at the end of this five minute video on whatever you know I don't know unboxing of an iPhone that will get ten million <laughs> views and then you have these these brilliant whether it's economists or psychologists or or doctors you know spending years of their lives after spending you know 15 years gaining the accreditation to be able, yes. able to do it spending years coming up with a research uh, study and then publishing it and no one is thinking about that yeah it's an absurd situation like you you put it really nicely there like on the on the product side if you if you want to think about it in these terms we didn't really innovate that much not just in the last 50 years, but in the last 500 years. Like the, the big one was the, the printing press. Right. But then like the PDFs that researchers produce, they're essentially uh, like they're sheets of paper with some text on it and, and some drawings on them. And like every once in a while a photo on them. Mm -hmm. But it's basically what was possible um, for like researchers 500 years ago. They could have produced a very similar Something looking similar. Um, product in a way and then sure like the, the the way to distribute it over the web that that changed but it's still sheets of paper with black and white it's so fascinating and it's uh and imagine there there's like all of us were so influenced by just the people around us that you think okay i'm going to publish this and so and so so and so and so and so are going to read it and i can't wait for their opinion and i'm going to blow them away with this study and and um and that's kind of the audience maybe you have in your mind, if, especially if you're uh, in graduate school, you're just thinking about, you know, the, the professors uh, or your radius of influence around you and and making sure that everything's there to impress them. But but forgetting that it's it's you know, there's just so much content coming out from every right. you know direction in the world we live in that. Um, yeah, I imagine there's amazing research right now that's just sitting in piles un unread. And um, you told me a stat uh, a few minutes ago uh, from the World Bank. Yeah. What was what was that stat? Well, yeah, the World Bank has a has a research paper series that they publish, and very admirably, they looked into uh, the uptake of that research, and they found that 32% of their papers that they publish get not downloaded once. They're not downloaded once. Like how frustrating is that? Like it's. And what what do you think the average year span or the time span that people spent on those uh, those papers that don't even get downloaded once? I like if I remember correctly, they looked into the two years after publication, um, and I th for the same in the same study, they also looked at citations where it was eighty nine percent, if I remember the uh, number correctly, that never get cited once. And but how long do do the researchers spend on that study that they publish? in you know october 2017 that doesn't get oh. downloaded once like it's it's a really hard and long process i think that's one of the really challenging things in research 
that from the moment where you get interested in a particular research idea until you actually can start working on it until you have the data it might be a year if you if you're fast but if you have to actually collect the data yourself it might be two years to to actually launch a survey launch a study somewhere God. and then it's several years to actually run this the study and collect the, da the data <laughs> then you analyze the data it could be oh like, my god and then boom no one downloads it yeah and it's featured by the world bank yes that is um it's very frustrating. so sad yeah yes and and imagine I imagine, yeah, those really smart researchers are like, okay, we're not doing that again. Or I might get one more of these studies out, but that was so painful for yeah. such a little payoff. That it, it's very, very hard psychologically to keep up the motivation, right? If, right. if you know that this is um, the world that you live in and that you're publishing. Like right. it's, you must be very, very convinced about the value of your work and very much self-motivated to actually keep up the energy for so many years to to yeah. actually get through that well um that's so fascinating and, yeah and if you compare that with a youtube video like right like you get up with the idea in the morning and in the afternoon you have the video out and if you're great at that like you have two million views the next morning or something yeah. right like it's I absurd i feel like it's it, it almost in the reason that those those folks are able to uh creatively obsessively think about just consumption is they're able to iterate so quickly, put so much stuff out there that I, that I think a, a non-obvious um, but imp seemingly important part of why there isn't consumption is probably because it takes so long just to get the product, the finished product, the research paper, that you're just thinking about that and you don't have this iteration of, oh, I've done this 12 times, I made these mistakes in the first eight uh, that never got read, I'm going to make sure I fix that, rather than from age... 33 to 39 you're just doing the study your first one no one reads it at 39 you're like well fuck that. i'm not going to spend six years <laughs> doing another one and, and iterating whereas that youtube star has done a thousand right. and has tried so many different things and that rate of iteration i imagine is in testing on that that other side that consumption yes. side and i think the way forward there is not to switch research to the youtube Right, yeah, well, yeah right. just the, as an the, example. The way forward is somewhere in the middle where the YouTubers, some of them, I guess, uh, need to spend more time on getting it right. Right, and right, the, yes. The yeah. researchers need to spend some more time in actually understanding where the readers are coming from, what the questions are that they have, um, how to present the research in a way that makes it understandable uh, for the audience that they care about. And actually be much more in contact with the audience uh, that they're doing this work for. Yeah. Yeah. This is like overly simplistic, but almost something to where it's like, Hey, can you build a following and engagement around bite-sized versions of, of what you're doing just for your own sake, show that you, you kind of have a finger on the pulse of, of, of an audience, the language that they, that they can consume this, this information right. in. And, and then, you know, once you, you do that, that's part of the criteria for the, because no one wins in that scenario if you fund that no. that research project for fifty grand or one hundred and fifty grand or five hundred. Much, much more. Yeah. Yeah. Like these research projects dollars. are really expensive. And then no one reads it. No one wins in that scenario. Um, right. But also to your point and to what you were just talking about, um, that FAMAS library is a FAMA, yeah. FAMA library. Right. It's uh, just better tools for the consumption. Yes. Um, that's interesting. Okay, so um, zooming out and and just kind of. 
uh, covering on a little bit about about you as a as a founder of of our world and data, as um, and and we're also going to touch on going through Y Combinator. You literally just finished it uh, yes. two days ago. Yeah, two days two days ago. So we're going to talk about that uh, as well as um, talk about just the whole concept of of this podcast of you know observing what's really going on, our world and data. You guys are the OGs of of, of fake news. Uh, way before that was even a term years ago you're publishing data that said okay here's a headline but here's what's actually here's what the data of the last 50 years is actually saying it's just such a um it was such a fascinating contrast when i first came across hmm. you all years ago and um and you built a brand now that um you know has inspired multiple best-selling books um is read by a million people a month um and you started out of a uh, small office in Oxford um, years ago, and now it's this this thing that um, I think is I actually said it on a previous podcast with Mike Maples that I think it's the uh, it's the most important website on the internet in in my view, and I really I really do believe that. And if you go check it out and you follow Max on on Twitter, you'll see you'll see what I mean. Um, but in this world where the YouTube versus research is such a good kind of uh, parallel because in this world where we are, our content is kind of dominated by people that haven't really studied or thought deeply about what they're putting out there. Um, and they're just, you know, putting it out there cause it might be fun or it, or it's just your friend's photos of, of, you know, their new baby. It's that's important stuff in its own right. But you guys are on the opposite end of the spectrum of the content that you're putting out it's not only super consumable, really easy to, to read and, and fascinating, but it's just hours and hours and hours of aggregation of thousands and thousands of more hours of people putting these studies together yeah. and you guys reading through them, finding trends. It's so, so fascinating. But walk me through where the idea came from for All World and Data and what were you doing before? Right. Um, well, the idea came, like I had the idea when I was uh, still a student to like that's really when 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 it sparked my interest and i guess it was really the frustration that i went through years of schooling i'm from germany germans go to school for a really long time <laughs> <laughs> then yeah. university and then at some point i saw some of these charts that actually mapped out how global health uh, global prosperity changed over the last decade what were you centuries. studying at the time I st in my undergrad, I studied philosophy and geoscience. So I did two uh, what bachelor is, degrees. Too, too slow. What is it to know what geoscience is? What is geoscience, geoscience was this mix of like you study climate, you study geology, uh, mm. you study geography and like some of some economics. So it's really a, a mix of different subjects. So it was yeah. it was a great field yeah. of studies. I thought it was too much of a mix of everything. And then I I focused m much more in my studies later. But as an undergrad degree, I loved it. Like we were out on the glaciers and we were oh, wow. uh, traveling quite a bit. It was in the Alps, so it was it was a great um, field of study. Um, but what were some big takeaways from that in, in that lens of maybe our world and data? The data says one thing that surprises uh, the hmm. layman's view. Like actually, like it it I think the the 
um, the revelation there was really this, like how living conditions globally um, have changed. That's something that I was just not aware of. And by that moment, I, I was going through years of studies, going through years of school, trying to follow the news. Um, and I was just shocked that I wasn't aware of some of these really fundamental uh, changes that happened during my lifetime. Like what? Um, I mean, for example, this morning we were looking at um, child deaths in the last generation since 1990. The number of child deaths in the world has halved. Mm. Like, since 1990? Since 1990, yeah. Since we were kids. Exactly, since we were wow. kids. And I think that's one of the most important achievements that humanity has ever achieved wow at a time when like the number of births in the world is now not increasing fast but it increased slightly so if you look at it as a rate of deaths it it's even a stronger decline but Mm. just the the absolute number of deaths um more than halved from more than 12 million to um more than a bit more than 5 million and that's children under the age of five Mm. and at the same, like at one, like at one way of looking at it is, it's just the biggest achievement ever because we lived in this really tragic um, reality for for centuries, for millennia, really, where um, one in three children are, uh, died before the age of five. Hmm. Like if you if you imagine what it means that for a young family to lose a child, it's it's just the worst tragedy that that you can possibly come up with, and that happened on this really large scale basically to every father every mother um, with a fertility rate of five six seven children per mom it happened on average close to two times that um, that a mom would lose uh, children that is yeah and and I remember in uh, the book sapiens talks about uh, to put that in perspective with a real uh, story he talked about uh, King Edward I believe it was King Edward about a thousand years ago, just a the most prosperous version of a family a thousand years ago. Um, so this was happening to everybody. But just that specific example where they have the records of, of deaths, 16 children, and um, I think it was, I want to say 13 deaths, right. 16 children. Um, that is unimaginable. Uh, and and you said the average mother would go through how many two deaths? Well, if you like the no matter where in the world you were born in the past, the child mortality rate was at least a third. Wow. And then fertility rates varied a little bit two hundred years ago, but they were around six children per woman. Wow. So for the average mother, it meant two child deaths um, of children younger than five. Yeah, on average in the world, it it's and for the listeners, this is the type of stuff that that is so uh, fascinating about our world. And you said you were looking at that as a team this morning. Yeah, I was just looking at it this morning because I was looking at this decline now over the last generation. I actually pulled up the numbers just now. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, 12.6 million children younger than five years died, and in the last data for 2017. It's down to 5.4 million. And it, it shows you both, right? It shows you that it's really possible to change the world. Mm-hmm. Like people who have this idea that it's stagnating and this cynic idea that getting, everything getting worse. that we that we ever try to solve, we, we're just failing and we're just 
uh, creating new problems. That's just wrong. Like it's actually possible to change the world. And in many ways we did it. But then it also shows how terrible the world is still like five and a half million children dying every year. That's 15,000 children a day. Hmm. Um, and many of them die from diseases and causes that are preventable. Mm. Um, and it shows you how much further we can we can still go if we set our mind to it. And then I guess the problem to connect this with what we discussed before, the problem that we are trying to solve is that this knowledge is all there. Like we know what is happening around the world. We know why these children are dying. We know um, what is possible, what makes a difference in, in reducing child deaths. Um, we have the solution. Yeah, it's like we have the knowledge in one area. Uh, of of where it's happening we have the knowledge of what stops it in another area right and the left hand doesn't know what the right hand and, is doing and it needs to be known to to the public it needs to make to be known by policymakers that it's possible to put this knowledge into concrete ideas and and actually um reduce these tragic deaths yeah. further that's the idea of, of our world and data and and so take me from uh, undergrad when you started just learning about this kind of the, the beginnings of, of these types of trends um, in living conditions, what is, so then from undergrad, where did you go? Right. Um, well, then I guess a big change was, I was reading Amartya Sen. He's an economist, yeah. like, you know, you of course know him. Well, and for leaders, he's a Nobel Prize winning right. development economist in South America. And, and his work uh, really influenced me at the time and uh, and made me change to study um, economics then for for a graduate degree S same here it's uh, that's really? what uh, when I was in in high school yeah that's what made me is uh, he talk about someone that can compile the data and present right. such a compelling case yes yeah, uh, brilliant yeah like for for anyone listening uh, development is freedom is, is a, is a right. great book a uh, great introduction into development economics i guess it's a bit outdated um on the data but then you have our world in data right. <laughs> to update your your data on that and, and the the philosophy and the economics in the book is is really uh, strong and, and really f great to read and i guess that changed me to to study economics um and then i focused mostly on on inequality as a research topic but it always frustrated me that we have this knowledge, we have this research, but it's actually not known to a large public. And well, my first idea was to do what everyone tries to do, to write a book. And I was gathering the data for that book and that got out of hand quickly. Like it's just so much data that we have mm -hmm. and so much knowledge uh, that we have on how the world is changing and why it is changing that eventually, then I, w I was at Oxford at the time and I was working with Tony Atkinson, one of the mm. um, like people call him the godfather of inequality research. Like he, he spent the last five decades really uh, researching poverty and inequality. And he um, then had the idea that we should just publish this online, just publish it on the web. Like the data itself um, is, is useful for, for people to know. And, and he actually, it's funny, like, it also connects back to this question of the the medium um, um, and innovating on on how we produce um, research. Because at the time he was just he just had had finished a, a book on earnings inequality in in OECD countries, and he was so like he's a he was a like unfortunately he died um, two years ago, 
um and he was such a perfectionist and there was one table on page 68 uh where one number was wrong and it was like the 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 first digit after the comma comma that was wrong and like it wouldn't have made such a big difference but he was really frustrated and he was like the way that we should publish that is is on the web like if if i had made a mistake Mm -hmm. on a web publication i could just go and fix that number here um and he was 70 at the time and he (laughs) he got it right Uh he saw that the web was the way forward i you and that ties to my views on on podcasting is that um i don't think we really really i mentioned this previous episode but we don't really know what this is yet like we yeah we call it podcasting Mm -hmm. we have a quote-unquote name for it um people know what they are um but i don't think we really know what is going on what this is when it allows for um an unfiltered conversation that someone can listen to in a deep form long form way around topics that um like everything from how you can consume it to listening to it while you're working out to the fact that you and I can sit here for an hour. If this was like a newspaper article, I'd get seven lines from you, add in my own right. kind of filter or angle to it, print it out, uh, and um, and then, yeah, it'd be statically right there. And, and it's you know my version of, of the things that you're saying. For someone to essentially get a glimpse into a five-minute um, exposure to to someone like you versus a podcast where you can talk for for an hour and and actually ask the questions back and forth that are going through um hopefully going through listeners minds when they're right in real time as they're happening to me the the media totally changes the medium totally changes the message and it's it's phenomenal i think that's such a small like it's a subtle but really powerful insight that that he had of like oh my god i could change that online and then that one decimal change turned into our world. So it, did it turn into that insight of like we should publish online? Online yeah. did that turn into that our world turn, data? That, exactly. That turned into our world and data. And wow. like at the time, I wasn't in the right position to actually pull this off. I had like I spent a lot of time programming as a kid, uh, as a teenager. But then during my studies, I I didn't continue that, and so I didn't have much knowledge of of how to pull it off and didn't have much knowledge on HTML, JavaScript, uh, the, 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 the languages. Um, I had to actually learn over the, over the following months. And it took me quite some time to, to come up with a site and a structure that, that I would be comfortable with. So, but that was the initial idea. Yeah. Like can that got me on this, on the track. Can we nerd out on the, on that, those first few months as a, as a founder that uh was embarking on something you didn't re- you obviously knew was worth doing because you were doing it but i imagine this is was this the first type of initiative like this you were starting yeah like well, i hadn't done something like that before so i i spent many nights and at the same t- like at the time i had a day job right like i was a researcher mm-hmm. at oxford i was paid to do research on on inequality that was where my focus on was on um, so it was much more a project that I spent the the evenings and weekends on. So it took some time to to get it off. Um, but uh, I think that also it also got easier in the meantime. So at the time, um, I was using WordPress as mm. as most people at the time, I guess. 
or maybe still today and uh, for the visualizations that was more of a pain like I wanted to actually not just produce a static visualization where it would be me who chooses the particular country mm-hmm. uh, or world region to focus on but I wanted to like I wanted to implement that vision that we have all of the data on all of those countries we, we understand what's happening in all different world regions um, with all different causes of deaths mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to build a visualization tool where the reader can access that data that is that is available so to build these interactive visualizations that took me some time um, and like that changed around that time like there was flash was definitely dead and d3 um, the javascript library was was taking off so i was um, trying to learn d3 and javascript to to pull this off and and walk me through why the visualization was so so important yeah like i think that is really a like another of these slight tweaks but that actually made a big difference lots of these lots of the data is there but then it's often in an appendix of a research paper or it's in a table at the website of the united nations or so and just to take that table and take the data and actually present it in a visual format is is so much more uh, helpful for people to Mm -hmm. actually make sense of what's happening kind of like a a picture is worth a thousand words type of and then walk me through why it was also so important to to be able to rearrange the visualization or or is it a kind of a dynamic visualization i think like it's it, the way that uh, that you would do it in a in a pdf where you can just do one visualization is to make a point about what happens to let's say cancer and you have the data for five countries in the world and that's the data that you would put up on your on this chart mm-hmm. it's just really hard to visualize what happens in 200 countries at the same time mm-hmm. and you have this one little image uh, that gives you a snapshot of what happens to some countries if you are um, a good researcher then you pick those countries that are somehow representative for what's happening in uh, the world at large mm-hmm. um but for the reader, it's always frustrating. Like you are from the U.S., but I didn't pick up pick the U.S. as a, an example country, and you want to understand what's happening here right. and make it relevant um, for for your own thoughts about the health system in your own country. And that um, that data is just lost in the process between me pulling in the data from um, maybe the IHME, a, a, a data source for what's happening to cancer, and then producing the chart. So the way forward should really be take the data on all the uh, causes of deaths for all the countries that is there and put that into a tool that makes it easy for people to pull out the data that is relevant for them and for for their for the questions that they have. So yeah. I think the interactivity is right. definitely a key there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's as American, we usually get included in in data sets. But yeah, but yeah, when I lived in South Africa, yeah, I was always it, most of the time it was, it was left out there's a funny there's a hilarious uh, reddit subreddit community of like world without nz and it's just like world maps <laughs> people finding world maps that just don't include new zealand that just just uh can you know conveniently just like don't think it's important and and uh and and it, like, there's a whole just subreddit of, of just photos of 
of you know professional maps that just don't <laughs> include New Zealand. And uh, the um, but yeah, if you're from Costa Rica and you want to know where you are in this trend, it's it's especially if it's just in a newspaper article that the New York Times publishes, it's very easy to to feel like okay, well, we left out. Yeah. Um, that I, so okay, so you start working on it and um, and tell me kind of like what is the what was the uh, did you have a vision for what it could become? Was it just like or was it just hey let's just build this out because Tony thinks it should be online and it'll be this you know five percent of my time or did you think whoa this is this could be really really different very unique? Mm, I think it's one of those things where like if I'm honest I I, I thought it should be big and it should be relevant like i mean it's like you're a founder like you don't you don't you don't found something if you don't have at least some idea that it could be really re really relevant and mm -hmm. i was i was thinking it it's just mad the world that we live in where we focus on where we focus so much on what happened in the last 24 hours what happened in the last hour but no one has an idea of the big really transformative changes that are happening in the world like i thought it, it can't be the case that that we are gets uh that this stays the status quo for for the coming decades it, we, right. we need to understand the really transformative changes that are happening yeah the i mean the the phrase of a little information is a dangerous thing that like sums up the state of our news it's these fearful moments of what could happen and it's it's just giving you these bite sites you know 24 hours at a time piece of information whereas if you had complete information or you zoomed out you'd realize oh that's actually not the trend and it's, i'm getting manipulated to think that the trend line is yeah is, maybe it's the manipulation but often city, it's but. actually that you ask very different questions mm. right like the the i mean the like Tony actually once put it like uh, that, like he said, there, there was never the day in which the newspapers in the UK announced the Industrial Revolution is happening. Mm -hmm. right? Like that, that isn't, it's just not, it's an event in world history, but it's not an event that happens on any particular day. And the people that lived through it, like missed much of it. Yeah, it's, it's only, and not just an event. It's like, it's like a chapter in a seven chapter book of Industrial Revolution. And, and yet, yeah, it's, you know, every single day, the, the talking points, you know, you talk about the end of the eventual like footnotes or things that are left out of the history books completely because they're not important. Right. Um, that's what we talk about or you gossip about or you are fearful of. But you zoom out and you, wow, that's a good way of articulating. You can you can miss entire chapters, meaningful, right. significant. Actually, I was I was impressed now being here for the last 10 weeks in, in Silicon Valley. People here, I think often quite get it because it's it's really relevant for understanding market opportunities right like mm. when people have actually money invested somewhere they really want to get it right like what is happening really to the prosperity in africa are we seeing growth are we not seeing growth you want to be right about these things if you actually invest in it is is it really a change that we are seeing um in preventing cancers and do I understand the market here correctly or not? Like mm. these really, these big trends are really relevant for people who are investing into what the world will look like in 10, 20 years from now. Right. The incentive structure here is yeah. very 
unique in that it's like, okay, how can we capitalize yes. on a 10 year trend? Yes. Versus you want to get it right. Right. The Someone incentive is to get it right. While the incentive in the news is not necessarily to get it right. right. The incentive is to say something provoking or like right. fun or get people talking today right. or clicking, yeah. clicking today. Yes. Yeah. But it's the incentive is not for being accurate. Right. It's, yeah. Um, could talk about that for, for hours. Um, the, um, the, and I want to get to the 10 weeks that you've just spent here in, in Silicon Valley and Y Combinator. And, and for those that don't know, Y Combinator's, uh, I think probably the most, uh, impactful investment vehicle in, in the world in the last 10 years, it's a accelerator here in, in, um, in Silicon Valley that, that um, I've been through, Max just just went through as a nonprofit. They just started to allow nonprofits in the last um, in the last few years, encouraging nonprofits, um, encouraging more nonprofits to apply. But before we get into that, on the, our world and data side of things, you just talked about a few trends. So, um, what are some of the trends that we should be aware of? Yeah, two two trends that are closely connected. Like a generation ago in 1990, only three quarters of the world had access to electricity. Um, and not having access to electricity, I mean, you've, you've just uh, said that you lived in South Africa for some time. You, you know what it means. Like the sun goes down and, and that's it for the day, right? Like there's no, um, there's no more homework no you can do. You can't, right. like, you can't sit down with your children and, and learn. They can't study. It, it's really... Um, it's really difficult if you imagine what a world looks like without electricity. It also means that people have to find other sources of, of energy. For example, um, in, in poor countries, a lot of um, households rely on solid fuels, wood, dung as a source of energy for cooking. And that means that they die of uh, the indoor air pollution, a massive problem that kills millions of mostly women and children because they are often in the households. Um, every year um, so it's now, not just inconvenience actually it can be fatal yes yeah. it's a it's a big uh, cause of death um, then the positive thing there is that more and more people get access to electricity and if you take these long-run trends and actually break them down to a day-by-day -day change the numbers are impressive since over this generation every day 295,000 people got electricity for the first time every single day what yeah like 295,000 people every day yes just in the next 24 hours boom another 300,000 exactly. people have electricity right. on wow. average right yeah wow so the the world is changing fast it's also that the population is growing of course but to actually imagine what has to happen in 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 infrastructure that is uh, that is being built in how the households are changing it's it's a massive change in a really fast um so 25% in 1990 didn't have electricity and what is the now it's at 85% that we, okay so it's 75% uh, had it now 85% exactly so it's a 10% increase and it still also shows you how far we are from where we want to be right so 15% of the world population uh, lack access to something as basic for for all the other 85% as electricity. Right. Like all of those people don't even think much about uh, what it means to be able to switch on the lights when they come home, right? Right, but you have to be encouraged by the trend line, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then a very negative trend, I think, that 
uh, is very closely connected is where this electricity comes from. And if you group together the fossil fuels on one side and the uh, low carbon emission uh, fuels on the other side, which are nuclear and the renewable energy sources, then in 1990, um, 36% of all electricity was produced by low carbon sources. And we are now down to 33%. We're really far from decarbonizing even something um, as straightforward, really, to, to decarbonize, uh, or as maybe not straightforward, but like there are harder things to decarbonize if you think about um, airplane travel or so. Mm-hmm. But even for electricity production, we actually didn't see any progress over the last 25 years. Mm. And I think that's something that um, not enough people are aware of. Renewables are a thing, but we're really far from um, making them mm-hmm. um, produce a significant increasing share of, of total energy production. Right. Much of it is still fossil fuels, coal. What were what were some of the first studies that you put out with our world and data that that brought you guys put you guys on the map? Do you huh. remember were there were there moments where just kind of blew up in front of you like whoa okay that that resonated maybe even on a small scale where you just started to see uh, something that you know relatively now with a million unique visitors a month it's it's not as big but early on we're like okay people are digging this. I think it was much more gradual. Like there wasn't any moment where I thought, wow, now it really changed or now I can really see uh, that people are interested in it. It was really gradual. Also, if you look at the growth of, of users, because it's it's so so broad, it's different things that different people rely on. Mm-hmm. I think what I was really happy to see at one point is how it was uh, picked up in teaching to see that like to get feedback from a university professor or so in some yeah. cool university he was like hey i've just used your stuff in class here's my set of slides uh i really appreciate what you guys are doing like that was because that's yeah. so hidden right like you i see it when when people are sharing it on social media but to actually see that it's that it's useful in places where it's not visible to me that was, right. that's that's often cool or like an, 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 uh, a recent, um, like we got this now a couple of emails from psychologists and psychiatrists who use our work in helping people with anxiety. That's something I would have never imagined. So? Right? Um, they say that some people really struggle with the news very much focusing on, on only negative events, like the terrorist attacks in the last days um, and and all all of the things that go wrong and that um, get people's attention because because they are negative events and a lot of the things that like that we discussed also before um, that you see when you zoom out is that sometimes things go right and they go right in a big way and it's really important for people to know and apparently these psychologists that uh, use our work think that actually helps people um, that have um, a hard time dealing with with only f- seeing the negative news in the television right. and in the media, and that's something I would have never imagined. Like that's so cool, <laughs> and I, but it makes total total sense when you think about it. I, re- I was explaining to to a younger friend who was about four when September 11th happened, so doesn't really remember it. Hmm. And, and I was 15, and 
And uh, when it happened, I had to kind of think why it was so scary for months and months and months afterwards. Now, and in one way that's obvious, it was scary for months and months and months afterwards. But in, in many ways, you know, six months after, um, you could look back now and say, like, what well, you know, one terrorist attack. Um, it's been 17 years. You know, it's it is um, anomalous and and a tragedy. But you know, it, luckily, um, it is. It's not something that is has occurred ever again. But in the time right after, if you're consuming this news. That is basically saying in the last 24 hours, we've gone from zero terrorist deaths to 3000, that trend line <laughs> and that timeline that we, we were just talking about. That's like, okay, tomorrow it's going to go to 10,000. Right. <laughs> like, and, and, and it was, it took me a, a little bit of time to get back into why we were so scared as, as Americans, but that's a, in the way that we consumed information back then, it was on TV all day, every day weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and even if you zoom that out for a day to a month okay last month was zero to three thousand this month is going to be three thousand to fifteen thousand i mean there were so many rumors that now i think are laughable but it was totally right. believable of like they've infiltrated coca-cola <laughs> right. they've infiltrated our, our water systems right. they're yeah, going to go after high schools right. next like it was so uh, and- believable uh, because of that that news the way we were we were consuming information that trend line was was pretty believable and that's true for for the for the coverage of your own country but it's even more true for the coverage of other countries mm-hmm. right the only or like there are exceptions of course but often uh africa is discussed when things go wrong when there mm-hmm. is like a, a terrorist attack there uh, an airplane crash as last week um, when there is a civil war breaking out. So foreign places look really scary to news consumers because only yeah. the really scary stuff makes, uh, it. makes the news. Right. That is, um, again, this all feeds into why, um, you know, and it, it really is available to anyone can spend 10 minutes on our world and data and be blown away by how well you present, how how um, accessible you present the 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 research and, and the data that would have either gone lost or just would have been so hard to understand. Okay. So tell me a little bit, it's as a nonprofit, you're kind of like a bootstrap startup um, where you, you can't just ask for $5 million for the resources. What has it been like um, the last several years of, of building out our world and data? How have the challenges been in getting the resources um, have you, have they come to you because people are like, this is such a valuable public good. We want, I'm a developer and I want to help or that sounds almost too good to be true. Has it been uh, pretty, pretty challenging? It's been a bit of both, obviously, right? Like there's like, it's been some great feedback. I think that the best is really um, the people that, that joined me over the last years and who work with me as a team. Like that's been the very best thing that ever happened to this project in the last years. People who really understand the mission, who are, idealistic and want to make this work um who who stuck around when when it was really tough um that was that was the best thing and now we have a team of of four researchers um great people who come with a ton of knowledge and understanding of the research field that they're that they're from 
Hannah Ritchie is a is a natural scientist, has a great understanding of the energy sector, of humanity's impact on the environment, agriculture, food. Esteban is um, a graduate from with a DPhil from Oxford, like a PhD from Oxford, an economist who understands the public sector, who understands the education. How did you get in touch with these people? Like, it's a mix. Like Esteban and I were friends for a long time. Like, we're yeah. still good friends. Um, and he at some point had the idea that he wants to have a change and was thinking like maybe we could work together for a month or two um, and yeah, I was like all right let's let's try this out we were a bit skeptical like to have like a, a friendship turned into a work relationship is never an easy thing and then it worked out really nicely and how long ago was that three years ago really yeah and now we're working together every day we were here at YC together as as co-founders in um, in YC and it's great like how do you think that's as you know the adage goes you know friends and don't mix friends in business how has it worked well for you or what have y'all what have y'all done to to help make it work well it's like i think with Esteban it's this very unique thing that we are thinking along very similar lines in but then have very different strengths mm. so we are often aligned in what we think is the way forward but then it's very clear where his where his strengths lie and what bit of the problem that he's tackling and where my strengths are and what bit of the problem I am tackling. So I was think that was just a really lucky combination of of interests and, and skills. For people listening, what are some of the strengths that you've realized over the years? Okay, these are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. I think... And Esteban's is, 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 is the, the strengths that he brings to, to complement that. Right. I think... Um, where he is is really exceptionally good is is really building like organizing a strong team organizing when does when do we have to do what to actually get to the next level prepare now so that we're in the right position to actually do the next step in mm -hmm. in a in a month from now like the a very concrete one is when we got into YC um we we were we got in as a non-profit but we actually weren't a non-profit at the time we were a research program at the university of oxford so we actually had to build a non-profit and how the, did you know to even apply to to y combinator uh as a non-profit i think it was a combination of a couple of things i was always in in touch with paul graham because i loved his writings like the founder of y combinator I got into his writing as a philosopher, like back in the day. Right. Talk about great information. Um, <laughs> right. Like it's, you can read his essays that are 10 years old. They're so, they're timeless. Yes. Um, it's, it, it's seriously one of the best writers um, I've ever come across. Right. Paul, I think it's paulgram.com. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So you can't love, his I love his writing always. And through his, like I was reading, for example, like a one that I recommend often, maybe if, if someone hasn't listened, uh, hasn't read, an, an, an essay by by Paul is um, The Age of the Essay actually an essay about essays I think it's a really great text so I got into reading Paul Graham's work and reading um, about startups through that philosophy angle more and then he got interested in the kind of work that I, that I was doing four or five years ago so we were always in touch when, when, I, when he had a question about uh, some data he would send me an email um, much more casual but of course then I learned much more about what YC is actually doing then a second big impact was 
all of the work that the effective altruist community in Oxford is doing. Uh, Will McGaskill, the founder uh, and co-founder of 80,000 Hours and the Center for Effective Altruism, went to Y Combinator and he told me great things about how helpful it is as a nonprofit to go to YC. What are what are some of those? Do you mind t walking me through some of those those things? One is just a founder going, th especially a founder from outside the U.S. coming to Y Combinator. Hmm. Um, and and for those that that uh, don't know, it's it's harder to get into than than you know any Ivy League school. It's really hard to get in, and and really helpful when when you are in. But what was it like as a founder coming over, and then what was it like as a nonprofit founder? Right. Um, it was tough. Like there's no, no kidding there. Like they, they are, they're serious. They, they say it's tough and it's actually tough. And it's, I think it's a bit hard to describe why it is actually tough. It's, I think it's because they ask you questions that are hard. So you have these, the, the one-to-one -one interaction that is necessary with, with YC isn't all that much. Like you have these, um, bi, bi-weekly meetings and they ask you questions that, uh, for example, like who is your audience um, was, was one question that we started off this discussion with them 10 weeks ago. And they make you really commit to a particular answer. Right. What Did you think that was a tough question 10 weeks ago? Or or was it when you gave your first try at an answer that you realized, <laughs> okay, this is, this is a lot tougher than I thought? Exactly. Like the, the questions sometimes are not... They don't sound like the hardest questions in the world, but they make you th they make you think really hard um, where your core interests lie and where, what your core mission is. And it starts off with these questions and it turns into a lot of work <laughs> the following day. Right. So. So what? Yeah. How did you answer when and who was asking you this question of of who's your audience? Do you remember that, that uh, partner? Sure. Like it was it was Michael, the um now the CEO of, of Y Combinator. And the way that it's organized is um, that you have group partners, three YC partners, people that are really knowledgeable, really that have a lot of industry experience um, around Silicon Valley, who I like the impressive thing with those guys is that the companies that go through YC are extremely diverse. Like we are these weird academics on one end of the spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum there are like food products and there is lots of um, AI um, augmented businesses there is um, like there was a company that builds electric planes in our batch there was a company that builds uh, cargo ships that should um, travel the ocean six times faster than cargo ships currently because they travel on hydrofoils in the way that right. these really fast right. sailing boats are, are traveling. So I, an insane spectrum of, of different ideas and projects. And those guys hear you for a minute and, and wrap their head around the particular problem uh, <laughs> in this incredible incredibly fast speed and and ask you the questions that are relevant for you and and like i was i was very impressed by 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 the partners and what was your answer your initial answer to uh who's your audience which can sound like an easy question but but uh threw you for a loop yeah exactly i think we 
like we it gets it back to this question of of the audience um that we started the the discussion with where a lot of research isn't isn't read by many people and us now having a million readers every month our question our answer was like our our audience is really a large audience and we went down that route with with the help of yc but we realized that really large audience is is far away from the million where we currently are and it would mean 200 million 500 million and the way that we do our work and the way that um readers are getting informed about the world doesn't quite get together with such a large audience so that wasn't really the the route that we wanted to take but it was really important for us to realize that right like it's a it's a straightforward thing to realize once once you're through it but it's actually really helpful and really valuable to know which route you you do not take mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting that that it's you know there's two sets of problems startups run into one is uh they don't have uh, an audience or product market fit and they're just trying to find that and that can be really beneficial because they're honing they're building the muscles to find that and and grow that audience um, or the other side of the uh, of the spectrum where you land on something and might start as a project that people just responded to so well and it doesn't build the muscles right. for and you guys are kind of in that that latter bucket where um, you might not have needed to think about growth right or marketing or uh, who is this for? Because people were just pulling it from yes. you. And you. it is so great to be in that latter bucket, but it comes with its own downsides of, okay, the market's been pulling us to this point, but now when we outline hmm. our next ambitious goal, we actually don't have the muscles built or the muscle memory to get there. Yeah. And you, and then it's a whole, that does, that does throw you for a loop. Then it's like, right. okay, now we basically need to do something that we have not been doing for the last five years. Right. You you explained that way better than, than I did. Like, <laughs> no, that's exactly. No, but I, I know exactly. Helpful, yeah. I know that that feeling. The um, so to, and and uh, before this, you were telling me as you're coming into the house that the last three weeks it started to crystallize for you, and or at least the last three weeks were different than the first um, seven. How how so? Tell tell me about right. Like it's it's time. hard for me to actually convey that well. Maybe if, if someone listens, I know like it's it happening real time exactly, for people right. listening. Yeah, <laughs> right. this is literally in the last few weeks, if not last few days. Right. And and probably I don't have the distance yet to really make sense <laughs> of it all. But my feeling for for the longest time was like, we don't have answers to these questions. We're really struggling to make sense of it all. I felt really like beaten up and like mm. it was tough. Like, I, was I there a moment during YC where you're like, I, I don't know if we belong here? um no because everyone is struggling okay i think that's yeah. the nice thing about it right like we we like there were it's not easy for anyone like mm -hmm. you are a big batch of of really cool people the group dynamic is great like everyone is really uh trying to to help each other out um yc sets you up in in this nice way where they make clear that you are you're succeeding together or you're going down together and the culture in YC is great so it wasn't it wasn't that that we felt out of place it was just it was just hard to 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 give the answers and hard to 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 do the work and it's it, it ends up being a lot of time that you actually sit down and and work and it's intense 
being together with with your team 24 7 um, at the other end of the planet um, so all of that is, is i think tough for everyone and it was tough for us and then in in the last weeks a lot of things um fought, fell into place in a way that that we are now understanding just what you described before like why it worked out in the first place like why people are interested in this in this work in in the first place and why uh, they come to us and why uh, we can be helpful to to our readers and and i think then it will take us maybe a month or two to actually understand how that all changed over the last 10 weeks but um like giving the the final pitch at demo day the big event where where everyone presents what their company or nonprofit mm -hmm. has done um felt good like it, it felt that things fell in place for us and then it's also of course a very different last day the demo day where the the nonprofits differ from the startups where the startups are are raising money from the venture capital firms for the ideas that they are working on and for the nonprofits it's it's basically asking for donations um to to make this 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 work so it, it differs in in that last day but all the way through um it was super helpful especially for us as a nonprofit because you wouldn't find that kind of help really anywhere else yeah are there any other organizations like and for for those uh Listening to that in the last day, you you make a two minute presentation, yeah. and and so you have to distill everything you've been pouring years and years of your life into, into a two minute presentation, um, which is is simplifying and terrifying at the same at the same yes. time. Um, you wouldn't we, think it's possible, like going in, right? right? Like everyone has this idea, like I need to tell everyone about all of these ins and outs of of my technology or whatever, and no one thinks it's possible, and then now we just went through demo day and like you look at it for two minutes and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I get what these guys are doing and why it could possibly work out. Would you be open with, um, with ending this on just some of the bullets from your two minute pitch and, and how many times did you rehearse it and, and, and spend working on it? Right. Um, sure. Like the, I think the, the, I'm, I'm, totally sure a, I'm totally putting it on the spot, but yeah, just it's, uh, I think now you have this two minute pitch that you can, you can leverage <laughs> all over the world. I could, I could give you the whole two minute pitch, but I think what, what is maybe more, more helpful there is lots of it is, is on what we discussed before, but what is really helpful maybe for, for some listeners who come from a similar angle, um, as, as we do is, is to understand that this kind of environment is helpful for a nonprofit. And I think there the, the key learning for us is that for a for-profit company, you, you get a lot of feedback through the market, right? Mm -hmm. Like whether your product works or not, whether your service um, is helpful for people or not, you will find out whether yeah, by either finding customers or not. Mm -hmm. And you will know when you, when you fail and when you, you will know what you'll have to do to, to find the customers. Mm -hmm. And for a for for a nonprofit, that kind of feedback mechanism isn't really there. It's it's much harder to get really good feedback on the nonprofit work that you're doing. Mm. Um, right, because if you're asking someone to pay ten dollars for something, 
they're going to tell you why it's great or why they're exactly. not going to pay you ten dollars. Right. But if you're giving something like your information away for our world of data, or if you're asking someone to donate uh, to our world and data, it's almost it's hard to get. Um, they might give emotionally, but then not give you the feedback on right. on what could be better or not know. Like people pay you when you actually have an impact on their life that is somehow positive. Mm -hmm. But the impact that you do as a nonprofit, it's it's really hard to measure and it's not necessarily also on the people that pay for it. Mm -hmm. So there's, this, there's a much bigger disconnect and the things that have to be done as a nonprofit, like building a public good in our case, um, it's hard to know whether you are on track or off track. And so especially for those people that that come from a nonprofit angle, why um, Combinator is great because they give you really clear feedback and they're really honest about it and they they don't hold back with telling them telling you exactly what uh, what they think and it's tough but it's always constructive so yeah I, I'm I'm really happy that that we went through the last ten weeks I never thought about that from the nonprofit side of things of of like I knew it would be valuable to get that those insights but even more so because it's so rare to get them anywhere else. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's basically basically no other place. Investors are doing that for for the startups all day, every all day, day long. Right? Like they right. want to make sure that they are on track to uh, deliver value for for the customers. Right. But for the nonprofit world, that just doesn't exist. And YC is one of the few places that that does it. And I think they've accepted now twenty twenty five nonprofits over the last years. Mm -hmm. And the feedback, it's not just us that think it's valuable. It's also the feedback that I heard from others. And it was a big motivation for us to go through it all. And well, now I can say it was worth it. Well, and, and I know that they, they want more of them. Yeah, um, It's working. They, they are loving that, that yes. uh, the experiment so much. They, yeah, they want more of them. Yes, they're very encouraging for, for nonprofits to apply. Well, Max, because um, of time, th I know you've, uh, you've got a full day ahead. I really appreciate uh the time that you've shared with us today and and it is a i hope to to have you back on because you know it is there's so much that we didn't get into within our world and data for those that uh that have never been there you go to you can go to our, our world and data.org yes don't go to com that'll take you to a capitalistic <laughs> uh fake news vert no <laughs> go to our world and data.org and then they can find you on twitter max c roser yes that's that's the handle all right at Maxi Roser is, um, I, you know, I follow like 15 people on Twitter and you're one of them. And it is one of uh, my favorite, uh, favorite places to get information each day because I know that it, it has a lot, a lot of research backing everything that you all publish. And, and it's a public good that uh, I'm really glad exists. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, James. And all right. Max. All the best for the podcast as well. Thank you. Thanks. Chat with you soon. friends and listeners thank you all for tuning in if you enjoyed this episode or you enjoy below the line in general go ahead and subscribe on the itunes podcast app or leave a quick review we love those basically because we just we love hearing from people that find value from these kinds of conversations and leaving a review good or bad is a great way to encourage more of this dialogue and, and lets us know that people are enjoying it so we appreciate those you can also follow us on twitter at at below the line podcast and tweet us questions anytime or you can email us at askbelowtheline at gmail.com that's below the line podcast on twitter 
and askbelowtheline at gmail. I have no idea why those are different, but anyhow, I'm your host, James Boucher, and this has been another episode of Below the Line. Until next time. Below the Line with James Beshera is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.